Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'm J.R. Lowry. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming my longtime friend, Tracy Keogh, to the show. Tracy is currently Chief People Officer and Growth Partner for Great Hill Partners, a private equity firm that's based in Boston. She started her career with the Bank of New England, spent roughly seven years in the hospital administration space, and has since spent the remainder of her career in human resources, starting in recruiting at Arthur D. Little and acting as head of HR for IT consulting firm Sapient which is now part of Publicis, for Manufacturer Analog Devices, for Bloomberg, for HR Consultant Hewitt Associates, and most recently for HP. Along the way, she supported some great CEOs and worked alongside a number of talented executive level leaders in each of these organizations. She also recently served on the board of directors of SciCiv, an HR services firm. She's earned a number of HR industry awards, including being named HR Executive of the Year three times and HR Department of the Year in 2019 while she was at HP. She served on the board of several industry trade associations and co-led a task force on the future of work for the World Economic Forum. She was named one of the 50 most powerful women in tech in 2016. She earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from Smith College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. She and her husband live in Boston. And every time I do one of these things, Tracy, I'm somewhat like a slacker compared to some of the people I've interviewed so far who just have done amazing things in their career. So you're certainly no exception to that. Thank you so much, Jar. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, we'll have some fun. So let's start with a question I ask pretty much everybody on the show. What was your very first job and how old were you then? So I think my first official job was actually working for the Adele Austin Babysitting Service, actually, when I was in high school. So started as a teenager and actually worked pretty consistently. And going through the agency, I was able to make a lot of money and, you know, learn some early lessons about reliability and dealing with difficult customers and managing tough situations because you have to have your wits about you and you never know what you're when you're sent out by an agency you don't know if you're going to have three kids or five kids or what their issues are going to be or their ages so it was a great training ground to uh, be able to begin kind of a, a working career yeah those first jobs you always learn something from them I mowed lawns. I learned how to maintain a lawnmower. So I'm not sure that that's had a whole lot of utility in my post-college life, but I still do know how to maintain a lawnmower. How did you end up deciding to go to Smith and why psychology? You know, I actually always, from time I was in high school, I thought I'd be a psychologist. So I went and did the usual tour of colleges. And it was funny when I stepped on the campus at Smith, I just felt incredibly comfortable, like, oh, this is my place. And so I was really lucky to go to an all-women's college. I didn't realize at the time the like very positive start it would give me. I loved my years at Smith. The nice thing was my junior year I spent in Geneva at the University of Geneva. So I got right. a co-ed experience then. But 
I think there was something for me about being in an environment where the president of the class was a woman, the head of the newspaper was a woman, I became a senator. I never thought, oh, I can't do that. I can do anything. And it gave me a lot of confidence. And I had just a great time there. And some of my closest friends that I made came from Smith. So it was a great school for me. And I actually still work with Smith now. I help them with recruiting and other things. So I'm a pretty active alum. Yeah, that's great. I've done a little bit of that over the years, but not so much lately. How did you end up at Bank of New England following graduation? What were you looking at? How did you end up? So if you remember back in the day when I graduated, there wasn't the same intensity to get a job that the kids have now. I stood on the front lawn and played Frisbee the whole senior year. I remember making fun of the girls going to the career development office. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually did still think I wanted to go on to get a PhD and be a psychologist at that point, but you had to do research before you did that. And those jobs didn't pay very well. So I got to Boston, you know, moved in with my friends and I just went to an agency, a placement agency. And so I actually interviewed either at Bank of New England or an advertising firm. And my dad was in advertising. So my childhood was a little bit like Mad Men. My dad was on, he was the head of advertising at Revlon. He worked at BBDO and then he had his own agency. And so I somehow decided I really liked the Bank of New England and took that job and actually was quickly promoted and ended up creating training manuals and doing all this stuff. I worked in trusts and estates and it was ended up being interesting for me. Yeah. And then you kind of took a turn. You went out to Cornell, right? You ended up in hospital administration, which I assume was linked to Joe's time there in medical school, right? Well, actually, so what happened at that point, so I had worked at Bank New England and I took a class at night in trust in the States because it was interesting. There used to be, I'd sit, I got to be the one that took minutes in the trust meetings at the bank. And so I'd go in there and listen to these crazy stories about wild families doing damage to each other. And at the end of every meeting, it's like, well, they've got $10 million. So they're a nice family, a nice family, even though this one's was stealing, whatever, was like all these interesting stories. So I took a trust course and the guy who taught it was at Boston Safe Deposit and Trust Company. And so they recruited me over there. And so I went and worked there for a few months. And then I realized, you know what, I really don't see my future in banking. And they were being very nice about saying you could be a banker one day. And I decided to move back to New York where I was from to live with my parents so I could take a research job so I could apply to PhD programs in psychology. And so one of those jobs ended up being at New York Hospital working with one of the pediatricians. And he said, oh, I took an assistant job. He said, we'll do the research on the side and then you can use that to write your application for PhD program and get the experience you need. And I'll tell you, I really liked running things. And so I became a hospital administrator. And that's where I met my husband, who at that point was doing his residency because I worked with the pediatric office where they were training all the residents, the residency office. And so we then ended up, Joe got accepted to a fellowship out in California. So we moved from New York to California. And I was a hospital administrator there for five years and did a lot of exciting things. Yeah. And then uh, the PhD idea kind of went away and you decided ultimately to go to Harvard for business school. So how did that decision unfold for you? Yeah. So at the university, I actually started a whole bunch of different programs. I put in a mentorship program in the Department of Pediatrics, and I was on a divisional level at that point. I started a training program because I was at the UC system, the UCSF, 
and they were in more forms than anything. And people really didn't know how to manage grant money very well. And so I created all these programs. And I remember at the end of the year, reading the dean's report that my boss, who was a departmental person, would write. And everything he listed as his accomplishments were things that I had done, which really made me furious. And so I said, okay, the only thing, because he was not that the leader, let me say. And the only thing he had that I didn't have was an MBA. And I yeah. actually had never taken any finance or econ or anything. I was self-taught. I was managing millions of dollars of grants at that point, but I just had figured it out on my own. And so I said, I got to get an MBA because I'm sick of this. And so I actually ended up at that point, we knew we were going to be moving to the Boston area because Joe, my husband had finished law school at night. He had done that for four years while working full-time as a physician. He's a doctor and a lawyer. And so he had gotten a job in Boston. And so if I knew what people did to get into business school, I never would have applied because I wrote my Harvard application in one day because the deadline was due the next day. And I remember it was 13 essays and I just locked myself in a room and wrote all 13. And Then I only applied to BU and Harvard and I sent them in and that was it. And so I ended up, interestingly, we moved to Boston and I did start taking accounting and finance at night at BU because I knew I was going to go in and not know anything. And I actually, in those days, they didn't interview you at Harvard, if you remember. And I got a letter on the date that I would either be accepted or rejected and it said, we want to interview you. And so I was like, uh oh, I thought they were going to ask me like tricky business questions that I was going to fail because I didn't know. And so I remember I got like a new briefcase and like a business coat and I was trying to look very serious. And I went to that interview and the night before the interview, BU actually called me on the phone and said, you're in. And so I said, okay, well, at least I'm in somewhere. And then I went to the interview and they just wanted to see when they found out that I was taking those classes at night, which I didn't know was a thing to do, but thank God I did it. They just wanted to see if I was going to be able to to keep up with the course load because of my different background. I always said I was a diversity admit, you know, in terms of the background. I think half the people at HBS said that they were a diversity admit. (laughs) It was a way to lower expectations, right? I just, I didn't even know. I didn't know what iBanking was. I didn't know what consulting was. It was all new to me. Yeah. How did you end up at Arthur D. Little? I mean, I know you were trying to stay in the Boston area, but. I have to say when people like are planning out their career, I feel like I just went Oh, here's a good thing. Actually, they called me. They saw my resume because they had a very strong healthcare practice. And I actually went over in consulting first, if you remember. And so they called me and the name of the practice, they had like put healthcare, media, telecom, they had some weird things together. And they said, would you like to come interview? And I said, I think you might've made a mistake because my background is in healthcare. So I actually was trying to push them off and they're like, no, no, we really mean you, you come over. And I went and interviewed with them. And I remember I liked the people a lot. And then we had a lunch with all the candidates because, you know, a busload of people, they have all the MBAs come in. And for some reason, I just thought I'd be funny at lunch. And I was just kind of, you know me, sometimes I can be, I was just like on a roll and everybody else was sitting there like a bump on a log. And so that was a Saturday, Monday morning, I got an offer first thing. And so I went and did an internship with them and internships, as you know, between first and second year business school can really vary in terms of 
I remember one of our classmates came back and they had given him a telephone book and just asked him to call people all summer. And he had a terrible experience. And he said, I didn't finish all these numbers. And they said, that's all right. We'll just get a temp to do it when you leave. So that's like the lowest level of an internship. I, on the other hand, got, I did four projects during the summer, one independently. I went down and stayed at a hospital and did this work assessment for like two weeks, 24 hours a day, I oversaw. I mean, when I don't know what they were thinking to put me by there by myself at that time, but I had an amazing experience and got to work on a lot of different things. And so when they asked me to come back to do consulting, I accepted the offer second year. And, you know, I worked in travel and tourism. I worked at operations. I worked in strategy. I did healthcare. I did a telecom. So it was just a great training ground. I always felt like my time at Arthur D. Little was like my residency, the equivalent after business school, because I got to implement a lot of the things I had learned. So it was a really good experience. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And you kind of went in toward the HR direction there, right? You started in recruiting. So what happens, I was traveling all the time because I had these great projects I was on and both my parents ended up getting sick. My parents are older. And I literally had to stop traveling because I had, I'm the last of five. And so I actually went in and resigned. I said, I can't keep doing this. And they said, well, you can't leave. We love you. We want you to stay. And what they used to do at r Little is when people needed a break from being on the road, they give them an internal project. And so the internal project they gave me was recruiting. And yeah. so it was only initially to be able to stay home, but I redesigned the whole recruiting process and we had the most successful year they'd ever had in recruiting MBAs. And then they made me director of global recruiting. So that's actually how I fell into HR. Then I got recruited over to Sapient, not in HR, but as director of operations for their strategy practice. So I actually still hadn't identified as an HR person yet. And I hadn't declared myself. And after six months of helping build the strategy practice, because they were IT based, I actually remember my boss going to get fired and he didn't know it. And I said, you're going to get fired. Go meet with the the CEO because he was not very in tune with what was going on in the company. And he was. And so then I'm like, great, I'm here six months. And now my boss is gone. What the heck am I going to do? And actually the CEO came to me and he said, do you want to run HR? Because the HR leader had left. And I said, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that here. It's too broken. You have to fix this, 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 and this. And he's like, you got the job. So that's actually how I moved into what we call people strategy. And so I took that job and I also still ran operations for North America, which meant I oversaw all the offices in addition to um, running people strategy, which was, we were on a giant growth trajectory, as you may remember, we got in the S&P 500 and and actually Sapient survived through all the different, the dot-com bust and everything else. It was a great company. I learned so much there and it was so good for me to be in a startup. And I still actually have people from Sapient that I work with today that I brought with me to HP and other places. So really talented people with a lot of capability. So I feel lucky that I had that opportunity. Then I actually, we had the dot-com bust and they actually rotated me and I ran sales and marketing after running people strategy for them. I actually consulted with clients. I was still doing a variety of kind of different business things. And you know, when I started running sales and marketing, which I did for a year and a half, I enjoyed it, but I realized I had a fund of knowledge in HR And it was a differentiator because not many business people at that point were going into HR and especially from HBS. And so even though a lot of CEOs 
Like I got a lot of great interviews because a lot of CEOs go to HBS and they're like, oh, someone in HR. So, you know, for me, it was a perfect choice. I was on the leadership team within five years out of business school. I like to be in the center of things. And I always think people are the most important lever of the business. And just not a lot of business people really were going into HR at that point. So I decided, even though I like sales and marketing, I was going to go back and get an HR job. And that's when analog devices sort of fell into my lap. Yeah. So you worked for Jerry Greenberg at Sapient, was a founder, obviously a very different founder. You were in the early days of Sapient when by the time you went to work for analog devices, their founder had basically... Gosh, been there for what, 30 plus years at that point, Ray? Yeah, Rice Data, yeah. And actually, so Jerry Fishman was the CEO at uh, Analog Devices. And I just really liked him. He was a real tough customer when I met him. He's one of the best CEOs I ever worked for. Super smart. Grew up in like, I think it was the Bronx and just had kind of a rough and tumble. He had a law degree, super. He did a great job in running that company. And I got to work with Rice Data, who was chairman at that point as well. And I Mm. even at one point had... Clay Christensen, who had done a lot of research from HBS, come in and spend one of the best days of my business life was he and Ray and Jerry and me in a room talking about the future of the industry. You know, one of those days. I was the first woman vice president that uh, Analog ever had, which was interesting. The senior leadership team was 35 men and me. It was an interesting time. I said to Jerry Fishman, because women were coming up like sort of rubbing my arm saying, oh my God, it's so nice to have a woman here. And I went to Jerry and I said, am I the first woman vice president you've ever had? And how come I didn't notice that in the interview process? And he said, yes, you are. And that's why we liked you because you didn't realize that. So it was a great opportunity. And I learned a lot at that point being heavily recruited by Bloomberg too. They, Peter Grauer from there, Mike was out running the city. And so they spent a year attract me to Bloomberg. And so, and I kept pushing them off because I was only at Analog for about three years. But I just like the pace. Analog is a very kind of cyclical company. It's just the nature of that business. And I'm like, I got a fire in my belly. And I feel like Bloomberg was like that. You know, they, you know, when I got there every Tuesday morning, there was the management meeting, like, why did someone take a terminal out? Like, they didn't focus on what new stuff you sold. They were like, who took a terminal out? Why did they do that? Because they had a beautiful subscription model before anybody else had a subscription model and they raised the price every two years. That was an amazing business. And I love the way it was built. And then ultimately that led to another opportunity, which was at Hewitt. So. Yeah. And off to Chicago. How did you end up at Hewitt? I, at that point, the search firm just reached out to me. I've been very lucky with having always good relationships. I always take calls from search firms, even if I'm not necessarily looking. One, you build a relationship. And two, I love knowing what's going on in the market. So I love knowing what's open. And then often, if I don't want it, I'm always helping with suggestions. And so those people will come back when you need them. So my advice is always to stay connected. And so Brand new CEO at Hewitt in Russ Brayton, who ADP and McKinsey before. And we were kind of in a turnaround situation. Hewitt had gone public, but not really understood it. They were still kind of becoming more of a public company. And I got there and their HR organization wasn't very good. And everyone kept quoting to me because they were an HR company. Oh, the cobbler's children go on shod. You know, it was the sort of theme song of HR. And I'm like, 
stop saying that. Nobody's allowed to say that anymore. We're going to be the jewel in the crown. And so, because the first thing our customers would say is, what do you do inside? And yeah. all our salespeople would be like, you know, they wouldn't say anything because it was not a strong story. And I actually was able to kind of work. It was so much fun because I had the whole consulting organization sort of right. as my thought partner on everything. And so I revamped the entire organization. I got involved in sales. I got to go out and meet clients. I used all of our products and helped refine them to a great extent within the organization. And so intellectually, it was a lot of fun. I'm sure Russ will tell you this up front. The first few months were super challenging because he had never worked with a strategic HR function. And yeah. I actually did one of those, go home and write an email one night. He's driving me crazy. And I read it to my husband and he's like, you can't send that. So I said, all right, all right, all right. I, so I went in the next day and I sat down with him and, I, and it was like, I don't know, we were like three or four months in. I moved to Chicago for this job. And right. I said, have you ever worked with a strategic HR function? And he said, no. And it was sort of like, and then we started talking and I'm like, well, what do you think about HR? And how do you think about this? And Russ was a giant baseball fan. I'm a big baseball fan too, Yankees fan. And so I said, well, what do you consider a home run? What do you consider a triple, a double? And I finally put it in terms that he could understand. And from that yeah. moment forward, we had a great relationship. And he really, we just, it ended up being just a wonderful four years. And then it culminated in us selling the company to Aon. I think it was at a 46% premium at that time. And then they sort of bought me upstairs to be what I called lady-in-waiting for head of HR of Aon. And during that time, another headhunter called actually Russ. And they said to Russ, you know, all the HR people, who's the best HR person in the country? And he said, oh, Tracy Keogh, you could get her. And so that's how the HP opportunity really evolved. And so yeah. I went out to interview for that. Yeah. And obviously you got that job, went to work for one of the companies in the United States at the time. I think we were uh, fortunate. You were working but, for Meg Whitman, right? At not at the beginning. So what happened is I got there. So this is the thing. I think we were about Fortune 12. I think we we're $125 billion. And, you know, that was a big step up in terms of oh, yeah. size of complexity for me. And I had, I don't know, I don't remember how many we had at Hewitt, but this was almost 400,000 employees, I think, at that point. And then you add in another 100,000 contractors, so giant organization. And I got there and Leo Apotecker was the CEO, and that was not going well. And so within six weeks, I knew we had a problem. And mm -hmm. I had to go to the board of directors. I was about six weeks into my job. The most difficult thing a CHRO ever has to do, and you weigh it very heavily, but the place yeah. was literally falling apart. I remember one of the executives walked into my office and said to me, like, a million people are counting on you to figure this out. And I'm like, I know, I know, it's got here. Between all of our employees, their families, our the yep. alumni and all the retirees. I mean, it was a, a very large ecosystem. And I was yeah. trying to keep our senior leadership from quitting because things were not going well. And ultimately, I literally woke up in the middle of the night. I was racking my head like, what am I going to do? And, I, and Meg Whitman was on our board. And I literally woke up and said, Meg, she's the one. And then I just yeah. worked to get her into the role because we couldn't go through another search. They had had, I think yeah. we had five CEOs within seven years. So imagine yeah. a large organization with that kind of churn in terms of CEOs. Yeah. Um, 
because Carly had been there, then Mark Hurd, who had right. to leave, they put in interim people, and then Leo came, and then we ended up having Meg. And so I went to Meg's house to talk her into taking the role. And I spent three hours over her kitchen table talking to her about why it was important. And she had just lost the governor's race in California. And so as I was driving over there, I'm like, how am I going to get her to take this role? Because Meg had, she had just joined the board, like, I don't know, a couple months earlier. And she was on my compensation committee of the board and she came into the meeting and she did something that really good CEOs do. She actually came in and we were talking and she went bing, bing, bing of all the problems of the company. Because I always find good CEOs can synthesize all the data in the environment and come up with the key levers. And I went, oh, she's really smart and she's a good CEO because she can cut through all the noise and figure out what the most important things are. And so that's why I actually thought of her for the role. And so I'm driving over to her house and I I said to myself, I know I'm going to get her to talk me into her being the person, not me trying to talk because I didn't think a hard sell would work. And I really wanted her to take the role because I didn't have a lot of other options up my sleeve. And so we spent three hours in the kitchen. I remember at one point she said, you know, HP is kind of the size of California. You know, it really matters how many countries we impact. And so I said, oh, I got her. I knew when she said that she had made a decision in her head she was going to take the role. And I'll tell you the thing I didn't anticipate about Meg when she came in. And then it was like literally in the news. Also, everything we were doing was frontline news, which is another difference because you're the size and scale, at least in the Valley, it certainly was. But Meg, I thought she'd come in and just run things effectively because she obviously had been a very good CEO at eBay and done a lot of stuff. But the level of work and energy she put in to learn that business was remarkable. She learned so much and worked so hard. She didn't skate at the top and just let the business leader. She went in and questioned and changed things. And the first year was just sort of the old don't bother coming in Sunday if you don't work Saturday. <laughs> like, like we worked every weekend. Like I was, I had a thing where I would just go to her house and go in the back door. It's like, I would meet her all the time. She's like, yeah. you get in. I mean, like, I'm sure her husband was sick of seeing me, but like, and we would talk every night. My husband's like, who are you talking to? You just saw her all day. But there was so much work to do and she worked so hard. And just at the end of a year, this is always my experience. You think you've hit everything in another You open another closet and the skeleton comes out. So anyway, so we went through a whole turnaround over those four years. She did a remarkable job, which culminated in the split of the two companies, which was another interesting exercise, which because we were the second largest, fastest, most complex split in business history at the time. I don't know if GE has outpaced us, but uh, with what they're doing, but and we did it within a year, which was incredible. And then I went and helped launch a new company. HP Inc. So that was really a lot of fun. Yeah. So some crazy times in there. Um, And I know HP had had, as you say, kind of a turnaround going on after a a bunch of years of ups and downs. What do you think you did there that really stood out relative to what most HR organizations do? Well, first of all, I always had a let's reinvent ourselves sort of mindset. And so one of the first things I did at HP, you know, HP is one of the most storied cultures and you can say whatever you want about HP, which is still going strong, but 80 years 
in as a technology company. I'd love some of the other technology companies call me in another 60 years and see how you're doing. That you can be relevant. We're the number one PC maker, and which of course has been super relevant in the last couple of years. At that time, we go back and forth. Who's number one? Number one in printers. We were number one or two in every one of our markets. And certainly when we split. But I think I brought back the HP way first. And that was so important to the employees. When I got Mm. there, the employee engagement was at an all-time low. And so I just went about reinventing performance management, reinventing our learning approach, reinventing the culture. I put people, this doesn't sound very revolutionary at the time. I put people at the center of everything we did again, which is really how Bill and Dave built the company. And you don't know how many companies in Silicon Valley were spun out of HP. I mean, everybody took Bill and Dave, the HP way. When I was at Analog, they had stolen stuff from the HP way and had it in as their manifesto in terms of like Bill and Dave started employee resource groups. They did what they called affirmative action training. Like they had in the seventies, it was unconscious bias. They hired some of the first underrepresented groups. Like they put women in sales leadership roles. They hired African-Americans. I found pictures of their softball team that was integrated before baseball was. You know, I mean, it was like, they were so amazing. They were like giant environmentalists. They were doing sustainability. I mean, so I felt like it was an amazing platform to have to be able to then reinvent. And that's the thing that HP really was great at is reinventing itself to stay relevant again and again. Now it missed some trends here and there as it got too big. And people, I think, made some decisions that weren't necessarily the best for the business. But overall, that was a lot of fun. And then my favorite thing was once we split and we started the new company, HP Inc., which at that point was 50,000 people, which to me seemed tiny. I was like, oh, I get to know everybody again (laughs) with 50,000 people. We called ourselves a $50 billion startup. And we, I threw out performance ratings. I threw out titles. We got rid of titles because I found they were constricting people's development. We changed how we did technical development. We once again, reinvented learning. Everything we did, we just constantly were reinventing. And so to me, I like to match the ethos of the organization. And we were all about innovation. And so I wanted that for HR. And so I was able to build an amazing HR team. And HP was a great training ground. And Throughout my career, at this point, more than 40 people that have worked for me have gone to be heads of HR and other companies. And that, to me, is what I really care about, is really upgrading the profession and developing people. So I spend a lot of time on best practices and sharing with people and just random people. I was giving a talk somewhere, and this great young woman came up afterwards. from She's from Australia, and she said, oh, my God, I love that. And She said, can I ever come and meet with you? And so she actually ended up coming for a week and following me around and my team for a week. So things like that, I I just developed, just really love development and developing HR leaders. And so I think that's probably why we were able to do a lot of exciting things. We were always a very scrappy organization. We were always best in class from a financial perspective, which to me just means poor. I hate hate when they say, because you're the cheapest, you're best in class. That's what all the consulting firms say. And we were still able to do a lot of, I think, really innovative things and 
an organization. And people, when they come in, they were always like super surprised. Different companies would bring executives to do tech treks in the Valley and they'd go to Google and Facebook and they often come to HP and like, oh my God, this is the best thing. They love coming to HP and seeing the things we were doing. I think it was always surprising to them. So I just felt very lucky to have the opportunity to do all those things. Yeah. And you and I have talked various points over the years. I mean, a lot of it goes back to your point, your conversation with Russ Fraden about a strategic HR function, strategic HR leader. I mean, there's a big difference between somebody who steps into that function with a broad lens of the business relative to somebody who steps into the HR function and thinks about hire, promote, develop, retain, pay, very narrow right. definition of the function. And it's obviously telling that you've had so many people, 40 that you mentioned, who've gone on to run HR organizations and kind of take that that more strategic mindset into a bunch of other companies. So, mm-hmm. Well, and I think the challenge is, if you've never seen it, you don't know what it is. First of all, yeah. I always say you have to train your customers, right? But it's the same way Russ, and Russ would say this. He said it to me at the end. He's like, I knew I'd screwed up when you, you told me never do this again. You know, like you get people have greater expectations when they've seen what good HR looks like. And so I think that I've never, I've had eight CEOs in my career and not one has ever come into my office and said, here's the HR agenda. Can you solve these things? You know, they've actually, what you do, and I realized this with my first CEO, is you need to go and say, what are your business problems and translate them into people solutions. And so I think when you have someone who's seen that, every time you go into a company, the person's like, oh, you can't get, I find an HR person who's not good. And they're like, oh, I love that person. They do the best parties and everyone, whatever. And so yeah. it takes me a while. I finally wrestle them away and I give them someone strategic and they're like, oh, oh, this is what it can be like. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. And so yeah. once they see it, that's what they want. But until it's sort of like you're describing something, it's hard to understand what it is. And I don't go in thinking I'm an HR person. I go in thinking I'm a business leader and my specialty is this group of things that I know how to do, but I weigh in on sales or this or that, you know, I've been involved in lots of different parts of businesses. And so I think the more, I love a finance person who moves into HR. You want people that are moving around. One of my CEOs used to say, how many of your people have moved from HR into the business? That to me is a sign of success. Yeah. So. That's the way you got to think about it in a different way and educate people to have greater expectations. That'll raise the bar on the function. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to spend a little bit of time in that head of HR role, right? Whatever it's called in different companies, you know, and you've worked for, you said eight different CEOs you've worked with, I'm sure dozens and dozens of people at the C-level or executive level in a company. What are the things that the very best of those leaders, CEO or otherwise, do as leaders? What really sets them apart Yeah, from your perspective, watching them as an HR professional? First of all, I think communication's unbelievably important. Now, I remember after the first year of Meg being in the role, she and I sat down one night and said, what are the real critical elements of this job? And one of them is definitely being able to communicate your vision effectively and bring people along. Because good communication creates trust. It creates followership. It attracts people. It attracts customers. It's just so important. And one thing I was always impressed, Meg is one of the best communicators in the world, if you've ever seen her. She did what Reagan did when 
they got to go stump and run for office. And so you get really good at giving talks. And I remember one of our first big conferences, she went and stood up and practiced for hours beforehand. I hate to practice when I have to give a talk. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, she still practices. So she never leaves it to chance. And that's why she's good. So I really do think communication sets people apart and communication in different ways, small groups, large groups, whatever, because that's often what people have to go on in terms of who you are, right? That's all they see in a large organization. So I think part of that then is your authenticity. Don't become an automaton in terms of how you speak, but really authenticity is really critical in any leadership role. And we saw that during the pandemic more than any other time. Because I think during the pandemic, hierarchies were washed away when everyone was on Zoom and suddenly, you know, someone's cat's walking across the computer, whatever it is, you no longer have that hierarchy to protect you. And so authenticity is really important. The other thing I mentioned before, I think being able to synthesize data in your environment and come up with an answer and figure out what's important is critical. I've seen people and even CEOs be overwhelmed with the variety of problems and knowing what to tackle first and at what level is critical. And then one of the things that I thought was really driven home during the pandemic for me was just ability to make a decision in a very unclear environment. Because we work in much, the world is an ambiguous place now, right? There's a lot of, be it climate change or whatever disasters, economic, war. I mean, there's the large macro things that are happening and then technology change. You have to be able to move and make a decision. I remember being like incredibly frustrated Uh, Warren Buffett has that saying, when the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. Some people I thought were good leaders. They could not get it together to make a decision. We didn't have two weeks to do a framework and figure this out. Like you needed to decide that day what we're going to do, which way we're going to go, how are we going to bring people home? And so I think being able to make a decision in the face of, of a lot of uncertainty is a critical leadership capability that has actually become more important now. So those are kind of four of the things that I would say are really important. Yeah. And on the flip side, I mean, obviously there are people who sabotage their career for one reason or another. They do something stupid. They're, you know, that's by email sometimes. Yeah. But what do people do that just, what are the common themes you've seen in terms of people who fall short? They move into that, that most senior level and they fall short for one reason or another. What drives that? I think sometimes it's, rigidity and not being able to move and be flexible and Mm. agile in the world, which not moving quickly enough is a real problem. I'm in tech and things move quickly. So that's actually, but there's almost no industry that isn't impacted in that way. And I think you literally have to have that kind of capacity to move very quickly. I think I've seen people blow up their careers many times by trying to prove they're right, right? Like going to a board or a CEO and having, you're not going to win a fight with a CEO in the middle of a leadership team to prove he's wrong or she's wrong. It's not going to happen, okay? There are different ways you can get to your answer and you need to figure out how to do it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't disagree and you have to be a yes man. But if you go head to head with someone, that can be very ineffective. I saw one leader too, he was a leader of a very large division of a company I was at. He went to the board 
And he actually thought it'd be a great idea to ask the board for more money for an R&D project he had with that, like going around the CEO to do that. And yeah. I was literally watching somebody die in front of you, you know, because he didn't realize it's actually not what you do to a board. And the person had a like a $250 billion division and he wanted 50 million more to do some research thing. And he thought he would present this thing and the board would go, yeah, you need more money from the central organization. And the chairman of the board said, you can't find $50 million yourself in a $250 billion division. You actually don't know how to prioritize. I mean, that was the end of his career at that company. It was literally like that. And so I think misjudging, like how to get things done, not being entrepreneurial enough. There's so many different elements, not making the decisions, as I mentioned, that ultimately can impact your career. I think those are definitely pitfalls and you need to, to think about that. Then thinking because you have the role, you have the power. I think you've got to earn that role every day with what you do and with connecting with people. And it's never more important than it is now with the great resignation. People are not going to put up with that managers anymore. That's definitely a thing. And so you have to be able to to be flexible and relate to people at all levels in your organization. You talked earlier about just the decisiveness that was needed at the beginning of the pandemic. You just mentioned the great resignation. What are your thoughts on where the world's going? I know you spent a little bit of time thinking about the future of work on that World Economic Forum task. Our friend, Debbie Lovitch, who I've also interviewed, is focused on that topic. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I love her TEDx that she did. I think she really nails it with the whole issue around, I think the whole way people are working has changed. And if you don't understand that as a company, you have a problem. But the whole issue around trust and autonomy, I think are critical for employees now. I think the positive part of the pandemic is everybody sort of threw up their hands and said, we got to figure this out. And so employees didn't have anybody micromanaging. They went home and figured out, our customer support people figured out how they were going to process credit cards from home. Our engineers figured out how to convert their dining room into a lab, fix something, and then they'd leave it on the steps of the building for the next guy to come take the prototype and work on it. I saw so much ingenuity for people just to do the things they want to get done. So I think really giving people the opportunity to create their own work lives, super important. I think the biggest challenge, and this is a challenge for HR, is we used to do what I call program for one kind of employee, right? Everybody was coming in the office, you created leadership development programs, whatever it was, performance management, all this stuff in a way for one group. You now have three, maybe four different kinds of relationships with employees. And nobody's increased your budget or quadrupled your staff, but you have to figure out how are you going to do career development when you don't ever see that person? How are you going to give people opportunities when they may or may not be in the office? You know how much somebody walks by and you're like, oh, I'll have that person work on this thing, right? Or you happen to be in the kitchen getting coffee together and you start talking about, you know, that stuff isn't going to happen. So how do you program that? How do you make sure culture is happening? So there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think the next few years are going to be what I call experimentation years. You're going to try things and smart companies are going to try them, fail fast and move on because and figure out what works in the new environment. The idea of going back to work five days a week to me seems like unbelievably burdensome. That like People have cut new pathways in terms of how they live their lives and they don't want to change those. And so... 
you're going to have to be flexible with that. I think the idea of you recruit people once and then that's it is gone. You have to have a mindset of re-recruiting people on an ongoing basis because you have to keep them engaged in your company because there's too many opportunities outside from different other organizations, the number of offers people are getting now. So if you think you can just rest on your laurels and talk to your employees periodically, that and the whole way you communicate, like one way from the top down, it has to be an ongoing dialogue in a much more robust way. So I think everything about how you deal with employees needs to change in the future. Taking the best from before the pandemic, then the best of what we learned during the pandemic, and then creating a new future. This is probably the single biggest shift that's gone on in work for employees in the last, I don't know how many years since we learned about Taylorism and all the other stuff that we learned about a business going. It really hasn't shifted much until this. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely with you on that point. It's a huge change that we're seeing. You know, one question that comes up all the time, the fully remote workplace, what's your take on the fully remote workplace and when that can and can't work? I think there are many companies who do it and it works great for them and many people do it and it works well. But I think you can't just have one mode of anything anymore. I personally like being in the office, but not all the time. I think I'm more productive in the office. I know... My engineers used to feel like that. They miss being together. We saw patent applications go down. We looked for indicators of productivity when we were at HP. And so the serendipity that happens when you're in a room together, talking about things, grabbing the pen and the whiteboard back and forth from each other, I don't think you can have it on Zoom. Zoom is just more transactional. That being said, a lot of that work but quiet work is also productive. So I actually think a mix is optimal. And I do think there are different populations who found a lot of satisfaction of not going in to the office. And certainly women, they are dealing with childcare and other stuff. There's a lot of positive about being flexible. Underrepresented populations felt like they didn't have to deal with 400 microaggressions a day from people. And they Mm. felt stronger and more confident. So I think there's a lot of benefit that we want to make sure we're identifying and keeping so that we can create kind of the best working environment for all people because everybody's very different. That's the other thing. People want what they want in the way that they want it, you know? So you got to, as an employer, figure that out and make sure you have those different experiences for them to actually be most productive. It's not, my mother used to say one size fits no one, right? Because it's not really made for anybody correctly. And I always thought that was a great comment. And I feel like one size fits no one. We got to figure out what fits everybody so they can optimize. Yeah, we could talk for much, much longer on this topic. Let me ask you one last question, just mindful of time. So you've led HR in organizations that ultimately have employed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. What are the sort of three things that are really most top of mind for you that you would say to somebody who's thinking about how to better manage their career? I think being open to opportunities. I mean, you've heard my career. I've done a variety of different things and everything feeds into itself. And so when I would just say, take those opportunities. The second thing, and I see this particularly with 
newer generations, don't be so quick to move on. Make sure that you learn what you need to learn in a role. I know dealing with a lot of different generations. Any given time, I have five generations I'm managing. And they're like, oh, I, I need a new promotion. You know what? Just play the long game. I think that's really important. And the other most important thing about your career is always remain curious and learning. Because my favorite people are the super experienced people, but they act like they're brand new. They may have 30 years at the company, but they're just as excited about a new opportunity. And that's who you want to be, someone who's continuing to evolve and stay curious and grow. And then you'll always be able to find employment because you'll be kind of on the cutting edge and looking at new things. Yeah. I mean, think back to what you were saying about Meg Whitman, you know, coming in as the CEO, had been on the board and spent a year really working to get to know the ins and outs of the business, got down into the details. And she's amazing. And now she's, they're looking at her to be an ambassador. She's like, she's just a multifaceted person. Yeah. 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 Impressive. Tracy, thank you. This has been great. I appreciate you joining and sharing your impressive. Thank you for inviting me. It was so fun to see you and talk about all these things. I wish I could stay on longer. I have another call, so I have to hop. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, again, Tracy, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.